You might have heard the claim that there is no evidence for God. This is a false statement. Any person who holds to a metaphysical position has some sort of evidence. The evidence might be philosophical, mathematical, or empirical. In this presentation, the intellectual journeys of Albert Einstein, Jan Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Fred Hoyle, Anthony Flew, and Alistair McIntyre, pertaining to the evidence of God, will be outlined. Albert Einstein's journey will now be outlined. Albert Einstein was a world-famous theoretical physicist who became known as a genius for his general theory of relativity. Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, especially for discovering the law of the photoelectric effect. At the beginning of his career, Einstein was a staunch atheistic materialist during Einstein's time in the early 20th century, the status quo was that the universe was eternal and that time was infinite, which was referred as the steady-state model. When Einstein developed the general theory of relativity, the theory, along with the cosmological findings during the middle of the 20th century, pointed towards the fact that the universe had a definite beginning and that time was finite. This made Einstein very uncomfortable, since that fact would challenge the status quo at the time. To avoid this conclusion and the metaphysical implications of his cosmological findings, Einstein desperately invented a fudge factor in his calculations. When the Christian astronomer George Lemaitre corrected Einstein's calculations, the fudge factor was shown to be bogus. The universe did, in fact, have a beginning. For real. The evidence that changed the scholarly consensus to accept the beginning of the universe included 1. The cosmic background radiation 2. The Doppler redshift's indication of the universe's expansion. 3. The second law of thermodynamics. 4. The equation of general relativity. 5. The equation of special relativity, which is also known as the bord guth vilenkin theorem. The secular scholar Alexander Vilenkin stated the following, quote, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. End of quote. Einstein would later admit that the fudge factor was the greatest stupidity of his life. Einstein later conceded that the universe had a beginning and that the universe needed a transcendent cause external of time and space. The great Albert Einstein had accepted God.
Jan Paul Sartre's journey will now be outlined. Jan Paul Sartre was a world-famous atheist philosopher and was a Marxist. He supported the regimes of Stalin and Castro. Sartre acquired the Nobel Prize in Literature. The grounding of objective values haunted Sartre his entire life, where he, in a stroke of honesty, admitted that, quote, if God does not exist, we find no values or commands to turn to which legitimize our conduct, end quote. The problem of evil has a prerequisite. The prerequisite for the problem of evil is that there is an external morality. An external morality is a term that is used to denote the moral judgments can be applied to other human beings. A few examples of such moral judgments include genocide, murder, and rape. The existence of evil must be part of the external world and some things must be actually wicked in themselves. In order for the problem of evil to emerge in the first place, hence, the problem of evil gives evidence for moral realism and moral laws. And a moral law implies a moral lawgiver, namely, God. Note, a moral ontology is referred to here not moral epistemology. The procedure in which morality was developed does not explain why morality itself exists in the first place. To use an analogy, the process in which a building is constructed does not explain why a building was constructed there in the first place. Using the basis, the philosopher Eugene Nagasawa has developed, quote, the problem of evil for atheists, end of quote. Additionally, the secular philosopher J.L. Mackey did concede that the problem of evil is unable to disprove God, since God may in principle have a morally sufficient reason for allowing suffering. J.L. Mackey said the following, quote, We can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another, end quote. Sartre later admitted that a moral ontology to ground in an external morality could only be achieved in a transcendent being. Sartre said the following, Quote, I don't feel I am the product of chance, but someone who was expected, prepared, prefigured. In short, a being that could be here thinks only to a creator. And this idea about a creator is referring to God. End quote. The great Jan Paul Sartre had accepted God. Albert Camus' journey will now be outlined. Albert Camus was a world-famous atheist philosopher and novelist who acquired the Nobel Prize in Literature. Camus realized that since human beings are a meaning-seeking creatures, there must be real meaning out there in the world. Since human beings are storytelling creatures, 
There must be a grand storyteller and a grand narrative, which can only be sufficiently grounded in Christianity. Camus later said the following, quote, I am ready. I want this. This Christianity is what I want to commit my life to. End of quote. Camus wanted to get baptized. The great Albert Camus had accepted God. Fred Hoyle's journey will now be outlined. Fred Hoyle was a world-famous scientist and an atheistic materialist, where he staunchly defended the steady-state model. The evidence pertaining to the fine-tuning argument caused him to accept a designer of the universe. Hoyle said the following, quote, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Quote. Hoyle also said the following, quote, If one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter without being deflected by a fear, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. End of quote. The great Fred Hoyle had accepted God. Anthony Flew's journey will now be outlined. Anthony Flew was a world-famous atheist philosopher for 50 years who fiercely debated Christians. As an undergraduate, he criticized the atheist-turned-Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis in the Socratic Club, where one of his essays ended up becoming the most widely reprinted philosophical publication of the previous 50 years. After being the world's leading atheist philosopher for 50 years, Flew came to the conclusion that there was a designer of the universe. From the empirical findings surrounding 1. the origin of fine-tuning, 2. the origin of DNA's information, 3. the necessity of a transcendent cause to the beginning of the universe. Flew explained that the then-recent scientific evidence showed that there was insufficient time for life to come into being from non-life. Blue said the following, quote, I now believe there is a God. I now think it. The evidence does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations, end quote. Flew also said that, quote, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity, end of quote. The great Anthony Flew had accepted God. Alistair McIntyre's journey will now be outlined. Alistair McIntyre was a world-famous atheist philosopher and a committed Marxist, where he was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. In the process of attempting to disprove Thomas Aquinas' philosophy, 
homicism? McIntyre became a Christian theist, where McIntyre realized that a moral ontology could only sufficiently be grounded in theism. McIntyre said that he acquired, quote, an Augustinian Thomist approach to moral philosophy, end of quote. The great Alistair McIntyre had accepted God. In conclusion, men who accepted the implications of their scientific and philosophical findings came to accept the existence of a living creator of the universe, namely God. If you would like to determine who that God must be, make sure to check out our critical examination of the world's major religions. Okay, so uh, now I want to do my review and, and assess the video that we just watched and give some, some bit of commentary here. So let me break it up into parts. And first I'll play the first part here. That there is no evidence for God. This is a false statement. Any person who holds to a metaphysical position has some sort of evidence. The evidence might be philosophical, mathematical, or empirical. In this presentation, the intellectual journeys of Albert Einstein, Jan Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Fred Hoyle, Anthony Flew, and Alistair McIntyre pertaining to the evidence of God will be outlined. Okay, so that's the first little introduction to the to the video there. And um, I just want to uh, basically say by way of an assessment here, I, I think that he's right, right? Like theists definitely have evidence that the claim of the fundilay atheists and skeptics who claim that theists have no evidence, quote unquote, no evidence for God is ridiculous nonsense. And only a fool or someone who's biased would believe that. Um, so I'm definitely on board with him. And I like that he says, look, evidence comes in different um, different types of evidence are relevant. So let me go back to that. Um, you know, so he's talking about how um, you can have philosophical evidence, uh, empirical evidence plays a role in the beliefs of theists, um, mathematical evidence, he's other forms of evidence like historical evidence in the case of Jesus and the resurrection. Um, all these evidences are relevant and, and subjective evidences, right? The uh, property based beliefs formed by faculties responding to the uh, self authenticating testimony of the, uh, the Holy Spirit, for example. These are all evidences that prove God exists, and we are warranted in believing on this basis. So I like that he says, look, it, there are different types of evidences here. So I think that's a good job, and I totally agree with him on that. Um, now, one thing I just want to say in general here, so in terms of his approach, I was looking at his video, um, his video on an, another YouTube channel, and um, a lot of the atheists and skeptics were kind of going after him and attacking him in the comment board, I think being a bit uncharitable to what Harry is doing here, right? So, you know, the, the thing is, look, oh, he's appealing to these six former atheists who've now all become believers in God, according to, to Harry. Um, and, well, this proves that God exists. So th isn't this an appeal to authority? This is 
obviously logically fallacious and all the skeptics are laughing at themselves having a, a gay old time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's obvious that's not what Harry's doing here. I think that's uncharitable. He's not making an argument or an appeal to authority and saying, well, look, all these former atheists, scientists and famous philosophers believed in God, therefore God is true. That's, that's not what he's doing here. He's making a more nuanced claim. And he's saying, look, there is evidence for belief in God and, and concluding that God exists. And I can appeal to a principle of enemy attestation and say, well, look, these former hard-headed atheists, biased as can be, even they, given the evidence, changed their mind and became believers in God. And this provides some kind of warrant for his claim that theists have evidence for their beliefs. Um, so I think that's what he's doing. He's not making the fallacious appeal to authority. Um, you know, you're, the people on uh, S.J. Thomason's uh, YouTube version of this video are, are just being uncharitable skeptics, internet trolls, and that sort of thing. They're not really engaging with what Harry is trying to say here. So, okay. Uh, so with that said, let's move on to the first little bit, uh, evaluating Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein's journey will now be outlined. Albert Einstein was a world famous theoretical physicist who became known as a genius for his general theory of relativity. Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize in physics, especially for discovering the law of the photoelectric effect. Yeah, so nothing much to add here. He's just giving his background. Uh, I think everybody knows who Albert Einstein is, the, the world famous theoretical physicist. Everything he says here is pretty good. Um, one just historical correction, Albert Einstein first became famous in 1905 for the special theory of relativity. That's what propelled him into fame. Uh, and then obviously later on, he, he gave the general theory of relativity, which is relevant to gravity and the beginning of the universe and that sort of thing. So he. Um, came up with that. It, that was published in 1915, uh, but then he applied it to gravity in 1918, um, if I've got the dates right, 1917 or 1918. Um, and that's, that's we'll find out what that means as, uh, as Harry and Brett uh, tell us. By the way, this was narrated by Brett Kean. I just want to give Brett his due uh, for making this video as well. So yeah, good job to both, both Harry Stark and Brett Kian for this video. So, all right, let's continue with his Albert Einstein take here. At the beginning of his career, Einstein was a staunch atheistic materialist. During Einstein's time in the early 20th century, the status quo was that the universe was eternal and that time was infinite which was referred as the steady state model. When Einstein developed the general theory of relativity, the theory, along with the cosmological findings during the middle of the 20th century, pointed towards the fact that the universe had a definite beginning and that time was finite. This made Einstein very uncomfortable since that fact would challenge the status quo at the time. To avoid this conclusion and the metaphysical implications of his cosmological findings, 
Einstein desperately invented a fudge factor in his calculations. When the Christian astronomer George Lemaitre corrected Einstein's calculations, the fudge factor was shown to be bogus. The universe did, in fact, have a beginning. For real. So one thing I just want to say about uh, what he was saying before um, about the his uh, equations, right? GR, the general theory of relativity equation. So he's absolutely right. Albert Einstein was famous for being quite foolish and being a biased person, atheist of his time. He was influenced. I covered this in my cosmological argument uh, show part 3A, I think it is, um, where I go into great detail about Albert Einstein was bought into this uh, verificationism nonsense that's been since shown to be self-refuting. No scholar on earth would believe in it today. Um, he was definitely an atheistic materialist and um, a nat, uh, person of nat, believed in metaphysical naturalism and had to, at least at this early phase, he couldn't accept that there's any kind of God or, or a special, eth special ether type deal out there and that sort of thing. So he, he's right in characterizing Albert Einstein was definitely the definition of a biased atheist scientist who's kind of like the Richard Dawkins uh, in terms of his bias against belief in God um, at this time. And believe he was a product of his day. The majority of the scientists of the day believed in this steady state the, uh, or a static universe, right? So the universe is eternal and it is uh, static. Uh, it, it doesn't move or change or anything like that. It's just it is as it is. There's just local localized changes, like our planet moving around the sun or something like that. Um, and what happened here is, yeah, the general theory of relativity. Albert Einstein realized, look, his equations had to be balanced on a fine razor's edge. The least little perturbation uh, or factor caused the universe to either to to implode to. Uh, you know, show that it's not static, basically, and therefore it had a beginning of the universe, as Harry is mentioning here, Harry and Brett are, are saying. So he came up with this cosmological constant as just a, a fudge factor, some made up BS, just to preserve the eternal static model of the universe that he was believing in. And um, George Lamatra and um, another man, another scientist, independently, Friedman, took the general theory of relativity equations, and in 1922 they realized, no, actually, Einstein, forget this cosmological constant. Um, even Albert Einstein himself admitted it was total BS later on, and we get a quote from Harry proving that um, after this. But they they said actually no, the universe began to exist is a better fit and they came up with this standard big bang model where you see the universe like a cone on your screen here where it begins at a, a point and then expands out and it makes more sense to say that the universe is expanding um so that's that's one thing i, I would kind of just correct here is that it's not so much that general relativity has to imply a beginning there are escape routes for that um, for example, general relativity breaks down at the quantum level. It doesn't apply to quantum physics, and that's a that's an escape route that some people um, use to avoid the beginning of the universe. 
But what was monumental at this time is that it proved the universe, it, it made it make sense that no, the universe isn't static, it's expanding, which means as we travel back in time, it was contracting. And then there's a finite boundary, it can only contract so much before you reach this point of infinite density, infinite heat and um, infinitely small size. And that's just logically impossible. And, and that was calculated out to be about 13.8 billion years or something to that effect. So the universe can't be older than 13.8 billion years. And that's what these Catholic scientists, Lamatra and uh, Friedman um, submitted that general theory relativity uh, proved or, or was a better fit with as a model. And obviously they presented this to Albert Einstein himself uh, at a conference in the 1920s. And he laughed and said, this is ridiculous. You're, you're an idiot, get out of here. Uh, well, Albert Einstein, you were the idiot. Um, and that was proven, uh, scientifically proven fact because in 1929, we got the first bit of empirical data which he's gonna present next. And at that time, even Albert Einstein himself said, I was wrong. And all the scientists, oh, virtually every scientist in the entire world, um, with some exceptions, we'll, we'll come to a scientist who's an exception later on in this video. But um, they said, yep, uh, the universe is definitely expanding. And not only that, it's expanding at an accelerated rate. Um, so yeah, let, let's find out a little bit more about that. What, what are the empirical evidences that um, working in conjunction confirmed the big standard Big Bang model interpretation of general relativity. So let's get into that. The evidence that changed the scholarly consensus to accept the beginning of the universe included one, the cosmic background radiation, two, the Doppler redshift's indication of the universe's expansion, three, the second law of thermodynamics. Four, the equation of general relativity. Five, the equation of special relativity, which is also known as the borg guth vilenkin theorem. The now, one thing I just want to mention about this slide. So there's also, there's another empirical evidence that you guys missed here, and that this came about before the cosmic background radiation that was discovered in 1965. The redshift data of so this the redshift is about stars accelerating away from us. This is how we prove the expansion of the universe because as the stars or galaxies recede away from us, they become red shifted. They look red. If something it's like a sound wave, right? You stretch it out. Well, if you stretch out light, that it becomes redder. If you compress it, so if something's moving toward us, and there are, there's at least uh, one galaxy that is moving towards us, it's going to crash into the Milky Way galaxy. That's blue shifted into the blue spectrum. Um, but yeah, the, the redshift data is what convinced Albert Einstein and the entire world scientists, yep, the universe began to exist, or the universe at the very least is expanding uh, today. And it, the redshift data also shows that it's expanding at an accelerated rate it's expanding faster and faster over time um but there's a third uh evidence here um there's also the light abundance of uh, sorry the abundance of light elements so like helium or hydrogen these are very abundant they make up the vast majority of, of 
molecules or something in the universe. And this suggests that the universe must have been expanding to a very small, hot, dense state and that sort of thing. And that this supports the standard Big Bang model. Um, so, so that's an empirical evidence that's not mentioned here. Also, another one, important one here in terms of mathematical proofs is another singularity theorem, the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorem from 1970. This also proved, quote unquote, mathematically proved, given the scientific data, the universe must have begun to exist at a point of singularity, at that tip of the coin, cone or before that, meaning it's finite. It didn't exist eternally, as atheists and skeptics like to say. Um, now, obviously, with these equations, even with the BVG singularity th theorem, which was made in 2003, um, there are exceptions to this. And so I'll, I'll get into that in the next part when he quotes Blinken. Um, but for right now, there, there's a couple evidences here that he missed. Um, What else? Oh yeah, and the and the other thing I, I just wanted to say is um, remember that I think one mistake that you're making here is we have to remember we're we're looking at Albert Einstein and he died in 1955. Um, so yes, we do have evidence for a cosmic beginning with the cosmic microwave background radiation or the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorem or the BVG singularity theorem and that sort of thing. Um, there's new evidence from redshift data, new evidence from second law of thermodynamics, but just for clarification's sake, I think you should stick just to the evidences that Albert Einstein would have been aware of. You can't use future evidence because that didn't play any role in why Albert Einstein would have changed his mind at all, right? Um, so maybe, maybe just clarify, clarify that, that there's a distinction. There are certain evidences that existed that Einstein was aware of. And then subsequent to Albert Einstein, we discovered new evidences that even further confirmed um, the truth that the universe began to exist or whatever you want to say, or that the universe is expanding. But just make that demarcation clear here is for the audience that, look, obviously Einstein had no clue about the cosmic microwave background radiation. He, he wasn't alive in 1965 to, to see it. So yeah, that's the only thing I'll say. All right, cool. So let's move on to the next part. In theorem, the secular scholar Alexander Milliken stated the following, quote, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end of quote. Einstein would later admit that the fudge factor was the greatest stupidity of his life. Einstein later conceded that the universe had a beginning and that the universe needed a transcendent cause external of time and space. The great Albert Einstein had accepted God. All right, so that's it in terms of the Albert Einstein segment here. Um, so yeah, just uh, by way of response, a couple things to say, and let me just go back to that actually. Um, so the, fir the first thing is 
in terms of so Alexander Vlankin, so remember the BVG, the Board, Guth, and Vlankin singularity theorem. So this is one of the world famous scientists who made up that BVG singularity theorem, proving absolute proof, the proof now in place that the universe began to exist. It ends in a finite singularity. Um, so that's the, that's what this powerful 2003 mathematical formula proves. Um, now, obviously, this quote, uh, this is famous. William Lane Craig quotes uh, this quote, and all scientists, all philosophers, and scientists who want to use the cosmological argument, or at least the Kalam cosmological argument, will will give this quote. And some of the atheists and skeptics, in in the comments on the other version of the other video of this, kind of take him to task, saying, "Oh, you." You fool, don't you know that, well, look, Alan Guth doesn't uh, believe in a cosmic beginning. He's also one of the scientists that invented this singularity theorem. And even Vilenkin provides some nuance. And in, in, if you read beyond just this quote, uh, it's not just quite as straightforward as it seems. And so on this front, I, I just want to say, look, uh, Christians are not misrepresenting Vilenkin or Guth in, in any way. This is kind of an atheist trick. Um, to get people to think that Christians are being manipulative or deceptive, and they're they're not because everyone everyone understands. Look, this the way the BVG singularity theorem works is that given the certain axioms, it proves that the universe has to end in a finite singularity. But there are those if you don't assume those axioms then the singularity theorem doesn't apply. And therefore, okay, maybe there could be an eternal universe. So for example, with the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorem of the 1970, there are at least five conditions, uh, quantum gravity being one of them, for example, or in eternal inflation or something like that. Um, so there are models that correspond to those assumptions. If one of those five assumptions is false, then the singularity theorem doesn't prove the universe began to exist. If those axioms are true, well, then you have absolute proof. And the interesting thing about the BVG singularity theorem as of 2003 um, is that it does prove the universe began to exist. And it only has one assumption, one axiom that atheists and skeptics can try to utilize to um, claim, well, maybe the universe is eternal or something like that. So well, what is that assumption? Basically, they, they have to assume, look, given that the universe is in a, a cosmic state of average expansion, meaning on average, it's expanding over the history of the universe. If that's the case, absolute proof the universe began to exist. That's all the empirical evidence we have. Um, it always proves that the universe is just expanding, no evidence for anything else. Um, however, atheists and skeptics who are physicists, this is where they'll try to bring up there's at least four different conditions, right? Well, okay, maybe you can posit an infinite contraction phase of the universe prior to the expansion phase of the universe. So on average, the universe, the expansion rate of the universe is negative. It is contracting. So this is an escape, a model that's proposed to escape the BVG singularity theorem. There are other types of models like an asymptotically static model. So this says, well, look, the, on average, the universe isn't expanding nor contracting. On average, it's stable. It's just net zero expansion rate. Um, and 
I won't go into the details of those models. I, I cover that in my cosmological argument. Uh, parts 3A and 3B, I go into exquisite detail of all these models and why they have been proven to be improbable relative to positing the universe has a had, had a finite beginning uh, at some point in the in the temporal past. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that obviously there are different models that allow you to escape it. There's quantum gravity models as well and, and stuff like that. Um, so I yeah, just wanted to, to raise that nuance there because a lot of people on the other video in the comments were saying, oh, he just gives this proof, it's misleading, and it's not giving the full picture. Um, well, it, it is. This, this quote is true. Um, but it's just assuming there, there is that axiom that the universe on average is in a state of expansion. Uh, it's not, it hasn't been contracting on average and it hasn't been static on average. Um, so yeah, um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, uh, yep, so there's that quote with Albert Einstein saying the cosmological constant, what a fool, what a fool. Um, come on, atheists, you gotta do better than this. Um, <laughs> The other thing, so the other thing that I wanted to, to mention here, and this is something I do think was a valid criticism of Harry and Brett here, is that, you know, you're saying Albert Einstein believed in God because of this change in his, change in the evidence as to the universe having a beginning or, or expanding versus being in a static state. Um, I, I do think that this is a little bit misleading. Um, because from my understanding, Albert Einstein didn't believe in God at all, in any kind of personal deity or something. He was more akin to the God of Benedict Spinoza. He was a pantheist, or maybe at best a panentheist. Pen I don't know too much about it, but I, I do know that he was more of a pantheist. He rejected any type of personal God, a God that had personal properties or a mind. Uh, certainly the God of Christianity or religions he thought was absolute bunk and absolute foolishness. So um, yeah, I, I don't know what you mean by, you must have a very loose definition of God here. Maybe, maybe you're just kind of comparing, look, atheistic materialism compared to what he was in 1905 before. Um, and then the only alternative is the God worldview. And that by God, you mean you can include pantheism or other looser definitions. If that's the case, then okay, I can accept this. But um, otherwise, yeah, I, I don't think it's fair to say Albert Einstein accepted God in the sense that it sounds like you're saying he, he did. Um, so yeah, that's it for Albert Einstein. Otherwise, well done. I think it was a very interesting, very interesting take to see how Albert Einstein himself and all the world scientists had to admit how foolish they were for believing that the universe was eternal um, over millennia. And yet again, the Bible and only the Bible was absolutely correct, saying predicting uh, that the universe had a beginning in the finite past. So that's excellent. All right. So let's next. I want to move on. I'm going to go out of order. I want to move on to his take on Fred Hoyle, another scientist and in, in cosmo the field of cosmology, just because he's related to Albert Einstein. So let's take a look at what um, Harry and Brett say about uh, Fred Hoyle here. Will now be outlined. Fred Hoyle was a world famous scientist and an atheistic materialist, where he staunchly defended the steady state model. 
the evidence pertaining to the fine-tuning argument caused him to accept a designer of the universe. Boyle said the following, quote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature, end quote. Boyle also said the following, quote, if one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter without being deflected by a fear, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. End of quote. The great Fred Hoyle had accepted God. And okay, so that's his take on uh, Fred Hoyle here. Um, so yeah, just a little bit about Fred Hoyle. Um, hang on one second. Okay, so by way of assessment of this uh, Fred Hoyle section here. So I think this section is largely good. So Sir Fred Hoyle is obviously, oh, let me just share the screen so you can look at, uh, yeah, so we have um, Sir Fred Hoyle here, a famous 20th century cosmologist and physicist, just like Albert Einstein. And his work, um, he was, the beginning, he was a, an incredibly biased atheist, uh, uh, horribly foolish in his judgment and that sort of thing, especially when it came to the evidence proving, the scientific evidence proving that the universe began to exist and or at the very least is expanding and that sort of thing. So he as late as 1948, this atheist at the time, Fred Hoyle, denied the standard Big Bang model. And he was the first to come up with a modern eternal cosmological model. And he called this the steady state model. Uh, it's looked upon as a bit of a laughable joke today in cosmology. But at the time, given the evidence that they had at that time, which Einstein would have been privy to, he, he said, well, look, I, this explanation cover, covers or explains the same empirical data. His steady state model at that time was just, uh, well, look, uh, matter just spontaneously gets created for no reason by nothing, ex nihilo. Uh, and as the universe expands out, that universe gets destroyed. Well, this is, this is absolute nonsense, of course. It's been scientifically falsified. Um, subsequent to the fact, even Fred Hoyle himself said, rubbish, throw it in the garbage. And I, I prove that and explain why in my cosmological argument, part 3A solo show um, for the existence of God. So I'll, I'll send a link in the blog or on the YouTube video. So yeah, make sure to check that out. It's I think it's around the two hour, 10 minute to two hour, 11 minute mark where I go into Fred Hoyle's steady state model. And even as late as the year 2000, Fred Hoyle was still desperate to avoid a beginning of the universe. He was he made up the quasi steady state model, a new steady state type model involving pulsations and stuff like that. Again, to, just to try and avoid the universe beginning to exist. Um, but as Harry and Brett uh, tell us, at the end, Fred realized atheism, only a fool could be an atheist. And it, was, it wasn't so much a cosmological argument, it was a teleological argument, the fine tuning of the universe. And, they gave that quote of his, his famous quote towards the end of his life where uh, somebody's monkeyed and fixed the universe. Um, so I'm looking at Wikipedia here. 
Um, and believe it or not, even um, young earth creationists or intelligent design people when it comes to biology utilize his work. So not even just at the level of the fine tuning of the universe, but fine tuning of biological life in that. And he was the one who came up with this super intellect, must have monkeyed with physics. Um, so, you know, there's not enough blind forces. And he made calculations showing that it's more likely that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747. You'll recognize that from all the Kent Hovine, um, young earth creationists like that, or Ken Ham. They use this quote from, that comes from Fred Hoyle. He's the one who, who invented that. Obviously there's, there's some issues with those calculations that he used to make these quotes, but none, irrespective of whether the, these calculations are correct or not, the fact is, look, Fred Hoyle, this is proof that based on intelligent design and teleological arguments, um, this guy this guy believed that there was a creator God um, that fine-tuned the universe. And that makes sense too, because his quasi-steady state model requires a high degree of, of fine-tuning in order to work, in order to work. Okay, well, he believes in a God who could do that or a creator of the universe who could do that. So yeah, other than that, I, I don't really know what to, what to say about this. This seems pretty much good um, on point. It seems true to what he's saying. I didn't see any critiques in the other YouTube video from atheists and skeptics who were cutting you up on what Fred Hoyle had to say. So as far as I can tell, A plus on the Fred Hoyle thing. Um, yeah, you're right. All right, so let's move on to the next atheist here. Okay, so we're now we're moving on to the famous, one the most famous atheist philosopher in all of human history, or at the very least of the 20th century. Uh, this was his official, he was officially known as this, and this is Dr. Anthony Flew. Um, so with that said, let, let's uh, replay the little bit here that um, Harry and Brett uh, talk about in terms of Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew's journey will now be outlined. Anthony Flew was a world famous atheist philosopher for 50 years who fiercely debated Christians. As an undergraduate, he criticized the atheist turned Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis and the Socratic Club, where one of his essays ended up becoming the most widely reprinted philosophical publication of the previous 50 years. After being the world's leading So yeah, uh, just quickly here, so he's talking about his paper, Theology and Falsification. I'll include that in my blog link um, in the sources section for you guys. So, all right, let's continue on. Uh, Anthony Flew, uh, now he's, he's a world-famous atheist. What happened to him? Atheist philosopher for 50 years, Flew came to the conclusion that there was a designer of the universe from the empirical findings surrounding one, the origin of fine tuning, two, the origin of DNA's information, three, the necessity of a transcendent cause to the beginning of the universe. Flew explained that. The then recent scientific evidence showed that there was insufficient time for life to come into being from non-life. Blue said the following, quote, I now believe there is a God. I now think it. The evidence 
does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations, end quote. Flew also said that, quote, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity, end of quote. The great Anthony Flew had accepted God. I'll okay, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, it in terms of Anthony Flew. So what do we say by way of assessment here? Um, so yeah, I think he's he's largely right. I mean, obviously Anthony Flew uh, put out a great book in 2004, I believe it was, called "There Is a God: How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind." Um, hopefully, I got the title right off memory. But um, yeah, this was a great book. I, I remember reading it and being amazed at um, how how open-minded Anthony Flew was in in looking at the actual scientific evidence and proof that uh, God has given us to prove that he exists. Um, and uh, yeah, it's he, he basically gives the three reasons uh, why Anthony Flew changed his mind. Um, now, one thing's important to note here in terms of Anthony Flew. So he accepted God. Well, what does that mean? Well, he, he was a hardcore deist. He believed in a personal God um, that wasn't involved or didn't intervene in affairs. He didn't believe in mer a miracle or a theistic concept of God, like the Christian God, someone who intervenes and does miracles and uh, tinkers with nature and stuff like that. He was a deist. Uh, so that has to be made clear. Um, obviously, that he wasn't a, a full Christian, unfortunately, um, as that kind of, I'll, I'll explain in a moment why that um, as a bit of a disappointment for my friend Gary Habermas. Um, he also didn't believe in an afterlife um, or any of the religions or, or stuff like that. So, so that's what he ended up believing based on the scientific evidence for intelligent design being one of the, the big factors, both at the fine tuning of the universe level and at the biological level in terms of DNA. Um, that was a huge portion of changing his mind. Um, now, in terms of what can I say by assessment or critique of the case that um, Harry and Brett have given here, um, like I said, it's pretty good. I, I definitely agree with them. Anthony Flew changed his mind. He saw there was evidence for God, and it was compelling, and he became a deist, so to his credit. And that was after working with my friend Gary Habermas for decades. So Gary was thrilled when, when, the, when this came out, and Anthony Flew finally... Um, realized the truth at least uh, I, that as, at least as far as he went in terms of becoming a deist now there is uh in terms of critiques i looked at um the other video again the atheists and skeptics on the internet were just kind of trolls they didn't offer anything in terms of anthony flu that was substantive um but here i i think there is at least one major substantive critique that you just totally neglect to mention and i think that you should have mentioned this at least mentioned that there's a controversy surrounding Anthony Flew's uh, conversion from atheism to deism. And basically, what is it the atheists and skeptics say? Well, like Richard Carrier, for example, and I'll be linking to his articles as well as counter responses and interviews that Flew did with Dr. Gary Habermas and that sort of thing. And they say, well, look, obviously, Tony Flew is an old man. He went senile. That's why he, he uh, converted. You know, it, it's just 
laughable, the desperation of atheists and skeptics when their worldview, their hero uh, says, no, actually the evidence proves there is a God. Um, oh, oh, okay, well, he must have gone crazy. Yeah, that, that's the only thing. Now, and the lengths they go to to try and prove this is truly laughable. It, it's, and it's disgusting, um, in my opinion. Shame on Richard Carrier and, and people like him. Um, yes, there, there, is, there is some nuance here. There is some evidence of, of Tony Flu going back and forth a little bit. So that has to be acknowledged. That has to be admitted. Carrier and atheists are right about that. But on the fun underlying fundamental issue about, look, there was this substantive change and based on rational reasons and evidence that led Tony Flu overall to say, yeah, I, I now believe that deism is true. And I'm going to provide the various sources to interviews so you, you can read it for yourself and determine, is it really the case that Anthony Flu in his later years was senile and that's the only reason he changed his mind and converted to deism? Like these desperate atheists and skeptics like Richard Carrier say? Or uh, do you recognize the obvious truth that no, the evidence compelled this brilliant man, this mind to recognize the truth. And he, unlike other atheists who are so biased, they would never accept it no matter what the evidence, he followed the evidence as best as he saw it. And he said, look, it proves deism. So let me uh, just play in a little clip. Uh, obviously, again, I'm going to put all the sources in my blog so you can read both sides of this issue and you decide for yourself uh, whether you think Anthony flew was uh, cuckoo, he flew over the cuckoo's nest, or if no, even in his later years, he was seeing that there was evidence and uh, this is what compelled him. So let me just play a little clip here from Anthony Flew himself. So what changed your mind about atheism? Let's go. What were some of the factors that prompted you to, in recent years, um, reconsider atheism and to come to the conclusion that, uh, that there is a intelligence? Um, it's been entirely these, uh, uh, I suppose, biological, discoveries and uh, discoveries about the the chemistry so the, these the, things the complexity and uh, yeah the integrated complexity argument now when you talk about the integrated complexity yeah. is it the the um unlikelihood of that developing naturalistically the first complex integrated biological system is that where the problem you saw uh, well, yes, because after all, uh, there is a, a problem about uh, even of uh, physical nature. There's, you know, it's if the integrated complexity of the physical world is a good reason, as Einstein clearly thought it was, of believing that there was an intelligence behind it, then. Uh, this argu argument applies a fortiori, the inordinately greater integrated complexity of the living world. It seems to me is, this is just obvious that it, that argument is much stronger now. And this was one of the factors that led you to conclude there must be an intelligence. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, uh, accepting uh, Einstein, who after all is the person who's qualified to judge, 
and seeing that a fortiori this applied where for Einstein didn't uh, have any authority at all and wasn't inclined reason enough to talk about it. All right, so so that's a little, just a short little snippet of Anthony Flew in his own words there. So, yeah, um, I, I I don't this this counter argument by the atheists and and that that Anthony Flew was senile in his old age and and that sort of thing, and that's the only reason he's changed his mind. Um, look, there, there's a case to be made where there is some waffling on some specific points. I think so. It it don't just totally dismiss the atheists, but at the end of the day, at the overall picture is, look, he, he wasn't senile. He was obviously fully within his reasons, and this is something he'd been going back and forth with for a while prior to his announcing the, his conversion. And again, I have inside access. Dr. Gary Habermas is a personal friend of Anthony Flew for like 20-something years before he died, um, ever since their debate back in 1985. Um, so yeah, I, I do have some kind of inside access um, to the fact that Anthony flew. I know directly through eyewitness testimony that uh, he was perfectly sound and his reasoning abilities, um, Richard Carrier's a fool. He's just biased. Um, I'll say that. He's trying to nitpick in order to make it look like he's lost his mind when he didn't. He, he was, he believed, became a deist based on sound reasoning. So I, just wanted to mention that. And by way of critique for your video, Harry Stark and Brett Kian, obviously I get this is a short video. You, you can't go into all the details. Even I myself, I'm not going into the details of the dispute about uh, Anthony Flew's mental capacity at the, at the time of his conversion. I'm, I'm just going to link to sources for them. Um, but I, I think you should have uh, at least mentioned the controversy and maybe just given a short little resolution to it in favor of, of uh, the fact that he was he was with it or something like that um, just to acknowledge that there is this dispute going on because now atheists are just going to say oh you're just selection bias and you're you're editing out the uh, problematic details so that would be only my only advice in terms of the Anthony flu section um, okay so let's move on to the next atheist philosopher so this is going to be John Paul Sartre the existentialist will now be outlined. Jean Paul Sartre was a world famous atheist philosopher and was a Marxist. He supported the regimes of Stalin and Castro. Sartre acquired the Nobel Prize in literature. The grounding of objective values haunted Sartre his entire life, where he in a stroke of honesty admitted that quote, if God does not exist, we find no values or commands to turn to which legitimize our conduct, end quote. The problem of evil has a prerequisite. The prerequisite for the problem of evil is that there is an external morality. An external morality is a term that is used to denote the moral judgments can be applied to other human beings. A few examples of such moral judgments include genocide, murder, and rape. The existence of evil must be part of the external world and some things must be 
actually wicked in themselves. In order for the problem of evil to emerge in the first place, hence the problem of evil gives evidence for moral realism and moral laws. And a moral law implies a moral lawgiver, namely God. Note, a moral ontology is referred to here, not moral epistemology. The procedure in which morality was developed does not explain why morality itself exists in the first place. To use an analogy, the process in which a building is constructed does not explain why a building was constructed there in the first place. Using the basis, the philosopher Yujin Nagasawa has developed, quote, the problem of evil for atheists, end of quote. Additionally, the secular philosopher J.L. Mackey did concede that the problem of evil is unable to disprove God. Since God may, in principle, have a morally sufficient reason for allowing suffering, J.L. Mackey said the following, quote, We can conceive that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another, end quote. Sartre later admitted that a moral ontology to ground an external morality could only be achieved in a transcendent being. Sartre said the following, quote, I don't feel I am the product of chance, but someone who was expected, prepared, prefigured. In short, a being that could be here thinks only to a creator. And this idea about a creator is referring to God, end quote. The great Jean Paul Sartre had accepted God. Out. All right. So, yeah, in, in terms of John Paul Sartre, um, I don't really have too much to say because I don't really know a lot about John Paul Sartre. Personally, uh, I'm not a fan of existentialists or existentialist philosophy. I think it's total nonsense, um, you know, this notion, oh, you just, uh, you just need to make that leap of faith, being an atheist or being a God believer or something like that, just, and then commit yourself to that. Um, it's interesting that he was a committed Marxist, um, a lot of disrespect for him, he must be pure evil then, but uh, <laughs> um, no, he's a, uh, I find it interesting. So like uh, one of the main things that's new here is one of his reasons is about moral ontology. And he recognizes um, one thing that you mentioned here that's interesting with Yujin Nagasawa is that, well, actually the problem of evil is proof that God exists. It's not an argument for atheism or against God's existence. It's actually converted into an argument proving God exists. And you say, because it hints that there has to be this ontological uh, objective basis for moral truths or moral judgments that goes beyond just subjective human opinion and or cultural opinion, something like that. And um, Yuji Nagasawa was not the only one to uh, come up with an argument like that. Let me just uh, see here. Um, in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, there's a great version of this, an argument for God from evil by uh, Dr. Stuart Goatz. 
um, at some point in my existence of God series, I plan to go over that argument because I'm going to handle the moral argument, then the problem of evil. And then, I mean, after I defend against the problem of evil for atheism, we're also going to see, well, there's a flip side to it where the problem, the evil is actual proof uh, for the existence of God. Now, obviously with that, uh, there is some nuance here, right? Because some atheists and skeptics will not list it in terms, they won't recognize evil. There is no problem of evil argument. And this is why they go for a watered down version saying something like the problem of pain or the problem of suffering um, or, you know, the pro I was just at a conference the other day, the problem of excessive gratuitous suffering. Um, so, so yeah, there are uh, obvious qualifications to this to try to avoid this moral judgment of things, certain events or states of affairs being evil and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say I, I think that this was interesting that he, it does seem that based on morality um, and also a teleological argument from the fine tuning of the universe there, that uh, Sartre believes in an actual creator God, um, if what you're saying is true. Um, yeah, uh, so that's great. All right, so let me see about the next two. Let's put this on pause for a second. Albert Camus was a world famous atheist philosopher and novelist who acquired the Nobel Prize in literature. Camus realizes since human beings are a meaning seeking creatures, there must be real meaning out there in the world. Since human beings are storytelling creatures, there must be a grand storyteller and a grand narrative, which can only be sufficiently grounded in Christianity. Camus later said the following, quote, I am ready. I want this. This Christianity is what I want to commit my life to, end of quote. Camus wanted to get baptized. The great Albert Camus had accepted God. Fred Hoyle's journey will now. All right. And I'll just go to the last one, Alistair McIntyre, and I'll play that. Will now be outlined. Alistair McIntyre was a world-famous atheist, philosopher, and a committed Marxist, where he was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. In the process of attempting to disprove Thomas Aquinas' philosophy, Thomasism, McIntyre became a Christian theist where McIntyre realized that a moral ontology could only sufficiently be grounded in theism. McIntyre said that he acquired, quote, an Augustinian promised approach to moral philosophy, end of quote. The great Alistair McIntyre had accepted God. In conclusion, men who accepted the implications of their scientific and philosophical findings to accept the existence of a living creator of the universe, namely God. If you would like to determine who that God must be, make sure to check out our critical examination of the world's major religions. All right, awesome. And um, I, I already reviewed that video that he was just talking about at the end um, on, my, on my Real Seekers website. So take a look at that if you want to see the video and 
my assessment of that. Um, and then immediately after this video, I'm going to be, he has a, a decision tree table that I'll show you and I'll go over that. But yeah, uh, just in terms of the last two atheists, again, there's not much for me to, to say about this, about what you've said here. I, I find Camus' journey interesting, his arguments as to why he, in the end, believed in God, interesting. Um, I'm wondering, though, without, uh, I haven't done any research at all on on uh, his journey converted to Jesus based on the storytelling argument, the grand storyteller argument, and uh, needing objective purpose and meaning in our lives. Um, now, you, one thing I do want to say here is that, okay, I can't bring it up. Um, you see, I am ready. I want this. Um, this is what I want to commit my life to. At least that quote, did he actually become a Christian? I, I don't know. Um, or is he just saying, look, I, I wish Christianity is true. It's like Anthony Flew is saying, well, Christianity seems like it's the best religion. It has the best evidence. But that wasn't him endorsing and saying, oh, well, I actually believe Christianity is true. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd probably just need to do a Google search or search um, chemist on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy or something. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's cool. Even if he didn't commit to Christianity on this basis, it's cool that he has this clear privilege where he sees Christianity is better than any and all theistic religions, and that's the one he wants to go for. Um, yeah, and I, Alistair McIntyre, I find it interesting here. Uh, again, nothing to critique really substantively on this, on this guy, but um, interesting that he's, a, uh, again, a commie. Uh, an evil commie Marxist, uh, just like um, just like uh, Sartre, and for that for Alistair here, uh, the the moral argument or the nature of morality, the ontology of morality, was one of the key factors in getting him to see the errors of atheistic materialism or atheistic naturalism and that sort of thing. Um, that's the same with Sartre. That was a major uh, stumbling block for him which caused him to convert and change his mind. So I just found that interesting that that's what the two commies and two Marxists uh, gravitated towards and caused them to change their mind. So yeah, with that said, um, that's it for the video. I'll, I'll just say again, well done. It's a short, it's a short 12 minute video. Um, so obviously you can't cover all the details, all the nuances and that sort of thing. And that's, um, but I think you give a good synopsis of who these six main people are um, and kind of lay out in, with broad strokes well, what were their reasons that caused them to change their mind from their former position even if they weren't full-fledged god believers in terms of a theist believing in a personal god and that sort of thing in all cases they definitely were um, convinced to change their mind that the typical definition of atheism which they were before is totally false and wrong so on that front i think you have succeeded in your actual claim that look these atheists there is definitely evidence that proves on at least on a balance of probabilities um that god exists uh, it's not true what the typical fundy lay skeptic or atheist says that there's no evidence for god no uh even these entrenched atheists who were horribly biased against theistic belief even they said eh, not really the evidence proves there is evidence that goes some way at least towards proving there is a 
theistic God. And that's, that's great for the Christian theist. Um, you know, it's, it's progress. You're, you're getting there. You're just not all the way there yet. Um, yeah, uh, great, great video. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so now I'm going to go on to evaluate your decision tree. So this is, okay, so after you believe in God, um, well, which God? Christian God, Muslim God, Hindu God, what, what is it? So uh, let me just bring that up, thing that he wanted me to cover here. And so obviously, once we have the existence of God from his left atheism video, this is where we also have, he mentions at the end, his comparative religion video. And I reviewed that already on my blog. You can find the YouTube video under Real Secret Ministries. Um, just search for reviewing Harry Stark's comparative religion video or just search Harry Stark you know, and it will pop up uh, my YouTube link um, where I review his video on the comparative religions. But he sent me this uh, decision tree that he wanted me to review in this show. Uh, so this is his decision tree chart for comparing the religions in a simplified form. So which religion has the highest probability here? So he says, look, well, here's our first factor. The universe has a beginning or not. If you answer yes, then you go for this monotheism uh, thing. So that would be Christianity, Islam, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, general theism, that sort of thing. If you answer no, then he says it's, then you're stuck with pantheism or things like Hinduism and that sort of thing. Now, it's important to note um, with this, I'm not sure that this is entirely accurate here. So I would dispute this. So number one, uh, you don't have to be pantheism to think that the universe is eternal. Um, there are some forms of panentheism, which Hinduism, there are some forms of Hinduism where the creation myth is panentheism and uh, that sort of thing. And these aren't necessarily eternal. They think that our universe did have a beginning. There's it's cyclical, um, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, there are different cosmogenies within Hinduism, for example, or other Eastern religions. And also with monotheism, there, there could be some monotheists who believe that the universe is eternal. Um, certainly throughout history, Thomas Aquinas, uh, others have argued that, look, even if the universe is eternal, we can still believe in God. So I'm not sure that this dichotomy is quite as straightforward as, as you make it seem here, you know, um, oh, well, if you believe the universe had a beginning, then you are a monotheist. No, you could be a monotheist and still answer no to that question. And a lot of monotheists have historically answered that way. Um, likewise, you could be a panentheist or a pantheist, perhaps, uh, not sure about pantheist, but at least a panentheist or a Hindu. Um, a non-monotheist, put it that way, and still answer yes, the universe had a beginning. So let me just uh, bring up uh, one example of a Hindu cosmogony uh, from the laws of Manu, which is a form of panentheism, but it, it would say yes, the universe has a beginning, um, although there's some nuance. So, so let me just uh, get my papers here. Okay, so the laws of Manu uh, is a Hindu text written about 200 BC, and it gives a creation or a cosmogony um, in terms of how Hindu theism views the creation of our universe. So it says, look, he, no, Ishvara, 
which is God equivalent to God, an impersonal God, you know, the Hindu version of God and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not really a personal God like Christians believe in and that sort of thing. But anyways, there is this Lord, Ishvara, and in his own impersonal way, he was desirous to create various creatures, i.e. the cosmos. Uh, so he does this out of his own body. So the universe is literally God's stuff out of his own body. And he creates this um, notion within himself. He creates this area of the waters. And this represents the female womb or, or principle. Um, and then within that little circle of water, um, this is uh, the, so the water is known as divai. Um, but she's the goddess kind of thing. Within that, there's a seed implanted and whoop, out pops a golden egg and that's the cosmos. Uh, the seed became this golden egg, egg um, and then the egg, uh, from the egg, the cosmos or the universe was born. Um, and that's where Brahma comes from, uh, known as the lesser god. Um, yeah, so in a, nuts in a nutshell, in this case, the universe is beginning to exist, and it, it only exists for a finite amount of time. Now, it's a long, long amount of time. Uh, it's 8,640,000 human Earth years. Uh, that's how long the universe, each cycle of this universe exists. Now, here's where I think Harry is going with this is, well, obviously, they believe the Ishvara is infinite, right? So there's an infinite amount of cycles you know, 8 million years cycles that goes on. But that isn't to say that our universe, our cycle is eternal. No, they, that has an absolute beginning and it has an absolute end um, after 8 million human years. Um, obviously, this has been falsified because scientifically we've proven our universe is 13.8 billion years. So I, I think that this is um, problematic for the... Um, the Hindus here, if I've got the, the numbers correct, I'll have to double check that. But uh, yeah, so, so uh, that's a, an issue for them. But the point here that I'm trying to make is that these Hindus would not, they would answer yes. Does our universe, our universe, our cycle of the cosmos have a beginning? Yep, it does. It's not eternal or infinite. Even if the Lord Ishvara himself is infinite, and maybe he brings out an infinite series of universe cycles for that period, creates, destroys, creates, then destroys, creates, then destroys. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that clarifies something there. Um, just going based off memory from my notes in class, but all right, cool. So, so then the next level, okay, great. So let's pretend you're a monotheist. You've got Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Zoroastrianism. So he thinks the next major question to ask is, did Jesus die on the cross? Well, if you answer no, the only people who would answer no to that is Islam, apparently. So again, it's a simplified thing. Well, remember, um, Harry, I disputed this when I said that I'm, I'm not convinced that Islam does, we can prove that Islam teaches Jesus died on the cross. Uh, there is that Surah 4 verse that has pointed out, by far the majority of Muslims, both scholar and layman alike, do affirm that Jesus did not die on the cross. This is why you have this ridiculous theory about the swoon theory, or they try to go for a twin brother theory um, to explain why Jesus didn't die on the cross and that sort of thing. So 
that's a respectable position. You might be right. Uh, and the majority of Muslims agree with you. But if you remember, and if you go to my blog on um, reviewing Harry Stark's comparative religion video, I linked to this paper, The Muslim Jesus Dead or Alive by Gabriel Said Reynolds. And I've been convinced that I don't think we can prove the Quran does say Jesus didn't die on the cross, given the Arabic. Um, so yeah, in this case, I would have to deny this dichotomy. I think if you're a Muslim, you can answer yes, Jesus died on the cross. That's at least an equally reasonable or equally plausible answer to give. Um, okay, cool. So what about on this final dilemma then? So you either have Judaism or Christianity. And the main question is, was Jesus the Messiah? That's what distinguishes Messianic Judaism from rabbinical Judaism. And on this, I fully agree. This is absolutely right. This is a true dichotomy, in my opinion. Um, yes, rabbinical Judaism, the false religion of the Jews invented after 70 AD uh, and really didn't even exist until after the completion of the Mishnah, 200 AD and beyond and that sort of thing. Yep, they would. They answer no, so they're gone. Um, Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have to answer yes. Um, if you don't, you're going to hell. It's an essential belief, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, Christianity or Messianic Judaism. Um, yeah, I think I agree totally with this dichotomy here. Um, I don't agree with your prior stuff here, but yeah, that's that's my take on your on your little uh, your decision tree here. I hope that's helpful in some way. Um, but yeah, with that said, that's it for that. Um, now the final aspect. Now I'm going to review Harry Stark's final video. Uh, this one is about the issue of abortion. He wanted me to play this. So first things first, I'm just going to outright play the video. Uh, so in full, without interruption, so you can see what he has to say. All right, so let me bring that up. You might have heard the claim that the human fetus is not alive. But is that really true? In this presentation, we will evaluate whether or not the human fetus is alive using critical examination. One argument put forth is that the fetus is not alive biologically. It is just a clump of cells. This argument is false. The scholarly consensus among scientists is that life begins at conception. According to the professor of anatomy, Keith Moore, quote, human life begins at fertilization, end of quote. According to the scientist Yuki Akata, quote, the life cycle of mammals begins when a sperm enters an egg, end of quote. According to Van Nostrand's scientific encyclopedia, quote, at the moment the sperm cell of the human male meets the ovum of the female, a new life has begun, end of quote. According to the obstetricians J.P. Greenhill and E.A. Friedman, quote, the term conception refers to the union of the male and female for nuclear elements from which a new living being develops, end of quote. According to the embryologist Jan Langman, quote, the development of a human being begins with fertilization, end of quote. Another argument put forth is that the human fetus is not a person, even if it is biologically alive. This argument is false. 
because none of the alternative definitions of human personhood can be consistently applied. We will now evaluate each attempted definition of human personhood. One attempted definition of human personhood is when a human achieves consciousness. This is definition fails because humans in comas still have personhood, even though they're unconscious. Newborn babies are still persons, even though they're unconscious. Another attempted definition of human personhood is viability and independence. This definition fails because handicapped humans still have personhood, even though they are dependent upon others. Newborn and prematurely born babies are still persons, even though they are dependent on parents or the incubator, respectively. Another attempted definition of human personhood is via the genetic code with chromosome pairs of the species Homo sapiens. This definition works because it is the only definition that successfully encompasses all human beings. It is also the only definition that makes a major and clear distinction between that which exists before that moment and after that moment. Before conception, there is no actualized potential. After conception, there is an actualized natural potential and purpose to become a fully functioning, sentient human being. This means that the fetus, regardless of its stage, must be treated as a human person with rights. Another argument put forth is that the woman has bodily autonomy over the human fetus inside of her. This argument is false. Firstly, a parent has an illegal obligation to take care of a living child, or else the parent will get charged with neglect. Secondly, it is illegal for citizens to end human life in domestic settings. Thirdly, the offspring in the womb also has a choice, which presumably is to live. The offspring also has bodily autonomy as well, and a right to life. Another argument put forth is that abortion should be permitted because of economic reasons. This argument is false. To use an anal analogy, is it permitted to drown a newborn baby because the parent is unable to take care of her? No, of course not. Since the newborn baby is alive, the parent or the state is obligated to take care of her. Likewise, since the human fetus is alive and is a person as well, the parent or the state should be obligated to take care of her as well. Another argument put forth is that abortion limitations infringe upon women's rights. This argument is false. Abortion hurts women's rights because it kills the female in the womb. Abortion is not a human right. Abortion being a human right is a commercially motivated lie. The right to life is a part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. By protecting the life of the female in the womb and being pro-life, we are supporting women's rights and we are making the world a better place for girls everywhere. Being pro-life is the most feminist thing you can do. In conclusion, the human fetus is alive biologically, is a human person as it carries the same genetic code, 
has bodily autonomy as well and has a right to life. If you've had an abortion, I only want to say that God loves you and Jesus loves you. And Jesus will forgive you for everything, but never do that again, ever, as the consequences will be severe. All right, so yeah, we're gonna, here's the uh, abortion video. I uh, played the full thing. Now I wanna do the assessment. And the first main half, half of this entire six minute episode, the video here, uh, raises the, the key issue, the crux of the matter between Christians and godless atheists who wanna kill babies. Sorry, <laughs> um, I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't say it like that, but all atheists and stuff, obviously I have respect for certain atheists who are just mistaken on the abortion issue and innocently, um, unbeknownst to them, are murdering innocent babies and that sort of thing. But um, anyways, the, the point is, um, oh, let me play the first three-minute mark, and it, it's the crux of the matter. Is, is that baby a human life or not? Is it a human living human being or not? Obviously, that makes um, all the difference, at least for most sane, rational adults. Um, who knows about the SNS skeptics? They're so godless and evil, they probably wouldn't care. Yeah, it's a human life, kill it anyways. What the heck? Um, so there are some people that just are that evil as well. But for the vast majority of human beings that have a moral conscience, and at least it's functioning to some degree, even if it's defunct because of our sinful natures, if that is a truly living human being, um, then they're not going to want to kill it in the, in the womb or otherwise. So yeah, this is the crucial issue. So let's hear what um, Harry Stark and uh, the woman narrator in here, I didn't give her credit. So she's of the Building Up Faith uh, YouTube channel. Um, I just checked it out. It's a good channel. Please support her. I'll provide the link to her thing. She She's really good. She's in India, apparently, or, or deals with missionary work in India and evangelizes to Hindus, Sikhs. Um, so that's something that I, I find is very often missing in the west it's, it's great um to have somebody who's kind of evangelizing and giving the hindus or sikhs and and that kind of thing and giving arguments for and against to try and convert uh hindus to christianity and stuff so uh yeah uh please support building up faith is the name of her youtube channel support her um but yeah she's the narrator for this video so all right let me pay, play the first half and then i'll give you my assessment you might have heard the claim that the human fetus is not alive. But is that really true? In this presentation, we will evaluate whether or not the human fetus is alive using critical examination. One argument put forth is that the fetus is not alive biologically. It is just a clump of cells. This argument is false. The scholarly consensus among scientists is that life begins at conception. According to the professor of anatomy, Keith Moore, quote, human life begins at fertilization. And just want to pause it, uh, just to point out, uh, very interesting. So Keith Moore, don't know if you guys know who that is, but he's the famous embryologist um, scientist who supposedly back decades ago, Muslims love this guy because he says, oh, the Quran miraculously uh, and precisely talks about the various stages of embryology, the stages an embryo goes through as it um, uh, develops in the womb. Now, obviously, he's retracted that since he said. 
and stuff. And um, he, it's been discredited this, but um, it's interesting nonetheless, just be aware that, okay, you're using Keith Moore. He is, this is his area of expertise. Um, he is a, one of the world's experts on this. Um, but just be aware, yeah, he, he was also um, someone who used to support the Islam claim from the uh, scientific foreknowledge argument or evidence, specifically about the stages of embryology. I just thought that was interesting, but okay, continuing on here. According to the scientist Yuki Akata, quote, the life cycle of mammals begins when a sperm enters an egg, end of quote. According to Van Nostrand's Scientific Encyclopedia, quote, at the moment the sperm cell of the human male meets the ovum of a female, a new life has begun, end of quote. According to the obstetricians J.P. Greenhill and E.A. Freeman, quote, the term conception refers to the union of the male and female from nuclear elements from which a new living being developed, end of quote. According to the embryologist Jan Lehman, quote, the development of a human being begins with fertilization, end of quote. Another argument put forth. So just before she goes on, so this argument number one provides absolute scientific proof, scholarly from scholarly consensus, biological life begins at the moment of conception. Every scientist in the entire world agrees with this. Um, obviously, that fetus is a biologically living organism. Um, so so yeah, that's obviously well. Is it a human living organism, a human being or not, or a person as? Uh, she's going on to say that's, we'll come to that. That's the next question. Um, yeah, I just found it interesting that uh, in terms of biological life, you cannot scientifically deny that upon conception, that is a living organism uh, that's in the womb. Um, the only people who would deny that, like the SNS skeptics, for example, I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of fun as I'm doing these review shows at their expense, you know, the, those uh, evil baby killers uh, over there, like Darren Lute and that, they all definitely think this, but um, I'm going to stop going after them. I'm going to be more charitable. Okay, so let's continue on with the video. Is that the human fetus is not a person, even if it is biologically alive. This argument is false because none of the alternative definitions of human personhood can be consistently applied. We will now evaluate each attempted definition of human personhood. One attempted definition of human personhood is when a human achieves consciousness. This is definition fails because humans in comas still have personhood even though they're unconscious. Newborn babies are still persons, even though they're unconscious. Another attempted definition of human personhood is viability and independence. This definition fails because handicapped humans still have personhood, even though they are dependent upon others. Newborn and prematurely born babies are still persons even though they are dependent on parents or the incubator, respectively. Another attempted definition of human personhood is via the genetic code with chromosome pairs of the species Homo sapiens. 
This definition works because it is the only definition that successfully encompasses all human beings. It is also the only definition that makes a major and clear distinction between that which exists before that moment and after that moment. Before conception, there is no actualized potential. After conception, there is an actualized natural potential and purpose to become a fully functioning, sentient human being. This means that the fetus, regardless of its stage, must be treated as a human person with rights. Another argument. All right, so before we move on to that, um, so yeah, just kind of a little bit of an assessment of this part of the, the video. So I have uh, a few things to say. So, so number one, we established in the first part that it's a biologically living organism. And then uh, I wish I could back up. It's not letting me, uh, hold on, let me minimize it. Um, so then she goes into this next objection, which is the all important, an all important question. Well, is it a person? And obviously by what uh, they're Harry and um, uh, building up faith uh, are saying here is that it's a human person. So that's what they mean. So. There is one thing that I just wanted to pay note here. So in terms of definitions of personhood in general, um, that's broader than just human beings, right? So the genetic code answer doesn't work if we're defining personhood in general. So for example, God is not just a person, he's three persons. And he's, at least prior to the incarnation, he didn't have human DNA or DNA at all. There was no genetic code for a spiritual being. Same deal with angels or demons these uh, evil spirits or uh, good spirits are uh, persons, but they don't have DNA or genetic code at all. So the genetic code isn't necessary, I would say, to define a person. It is part of the essential definition to define human personhood, right? So I think in the womb, scientifically, yes, it has that genetic code. I define a person, a human being, as a person so that's the spiritual soul that is embodied um, in a physical sub substance governed by the human homo sapien genome uh, or, and or uh, the human genome. That could be broader than just homo sapiens. If you take someone like William Lane Craig's understanding of human beings where it includes uh, some other hominids in there as well. So you can widen the genetic code. It doesn't just have to be homo sapiens. It just has to be the human genome. Uh, so you can widen that there. So yeah, um, I think this works. I think that's that's great. And it's just sticking to the science. Um, but obviously, in terms of a human person, I think as a Christian, we do want to throw in, well, it's the soul that is the person. And the soul is becoming embodied in a physical, those cells as they grow and multiply, the, meaning the body, uh, that's governed by the, the human genome or the human genetic code uh, is the way I would say that. Personally, just to clarify and make clear that uh, persons aren't identified with only being human have, or having the human genetic code. No, we don't want to deny that. And in fact, we don't want to say that human beings are, are, sorry, persons are limited to physical beings. No, angels are spiritual. They have no DNA, but they are, they are persons. Um, same with God. He's three persons in one soul. Um, so yeah, that's what I wanted to say there. Um, now, one thing I did want to say about this genetic code, um, again, I don't, I don't think 
this works as well because think about it and this may be my kind of lack of knowledge of medical facts and stuff but from my understanding this can be falsified in the same way of saying well look uh dead human bodies they have the human genetic code they have human dna right um so i don't i don't think that's the key for human life right because we also want it to be a, a an alive person so that's where the soul is very important because once that soul is embodied um and obviously for me i take a thomistic dualist approach right or a metaphysical aristotelian understanding of the soul and the body so i don't necessarily take like a cartesian view where it's there's your soul and it's the ghost in the machine of your body and stuff like that no i think the soul is primary and the body is just a mode or manifestation of the soul itself it's a part of the soul so in that sense the it, the soul provides the blueprints for the genetic co codes and stuff like that and, and how our physical body develops as a mode of the soul itself uh and then death biblically speaking is when the soul is separated from that physical body uh that's what according to the bible in my understanding the definition of death is so in order to be a living person that's when the soul become is embodied and um it manifests the that physical genetic code in the form of that clump of cells as the atheists like to call it and stuff at that point we can say it's a living human person and therefore you can't you, you're a murderer if you want to uh have an abortion and, and butcher that innocent life in your womb um so that's how i would respond to that and that brings up a final interesting aspect here um okay so obviously i i think that this soul aspect is crucial for making the argument and uh, that it's a living human being or a human person um so that comes into the question of what it, what is the origin of the soul itself because for example muslims they say well the soul doesn't come into existence until some months later so for muslim oh you want to have an abortion cool as long as it's early enough as long as it's before the soul gets inserted into that clump of cells so to speak go ahead no problem right so that's why we have to ask, well, when is the origin of the soul? And on this front, there are at least four views. So let me um, bring that up. Hopefully it's showing up here from current slide. Okay, there we go. Okay, so there are about four views as to the origin of the, of the human soul. So the first is called the sole pre-existence view. Now this is not a popular view. This was uh, kind of based on a her heretical Platonic doctrine back in the early church by the early church father Origen. And he was condemned as a heretic for this view. But he kind of says, look, the souls, they all exist. Remember um, the movie, Bill and Ted, uh, Bogus Journey, they go to heaven. And you see all the souls, past, present and future. There are future souls just floating around up in heaven waiting to be born. That's what this view is, right? The, the souls just exist up there for all eternity, waiting for their, their moment, so to speak, or, or at the very least from the moment of creation, the, the universe waiting to for their time to be born. And then obviously once that happens, then God inserts their souls into their physical bodies, uh, their particular bodies at that time. 
Um, so that's this view. Obviously, that's unbiblical. That doesn't make sense. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. So as Christians, we would have to reject this. The second is the uh, Traducian view. So this was held by the early church father, Tertullian, the guy who invented the term Trinity. Um, and he said, well, look, um, what happens, just like with the physical body, uh, it's a, a causal product of both the parents. You know, that union in sperm of an egg creates the physical body. That It's like a mixture that comes together and, whoops, out pops a new substance, the body. Well, it's the same with the souls. The souls of the parents mix together during a sexual union and upon conception, souls uh, of the parents mix together and create a new soul. Uh, so it's like your soul is half the soul of your mom, half your soul of your, uh, your father, and it produces this new soul. Uh, it doesn't require any kind of immediate miraculous creative act on God's part. Um, it's just a law of nature that we've yet to um, discover type deal. Next, we have the emergentism view. And this is a view that didn't exist in the early church at all. It's actually a recent view based on evolution and neuroscience and atheistic skepticism and naturalism views. But it's by a contemporary philosopher, William Hasker. And I mentioned him in my um, solo series about the existence of the soul. So he thinks, look, as the brain, as that clump of cells develops, it's not a living human being. There's no soul. But once it reaches a certain level of complexity, boom, like an epiphenomenon, the soul emerges out of that complicated brain. Um, once it reaches that level of complexity, develops to a certain stage, boom, out pops a soul. A soul emerges. So that's his view. And obviously this is uh, heretical as well. It doesn't fit well with the Bible. Um, the Bible says that we're a human being right from the moment of conception. This is in Psalms with King David, and I think it's, I know that Psalms is poetry, um, but I think it's actually literal that um, the view is, look, upon conception, you are alive. I was created at the moment of conception. But then finally, we have the creationist view. This is the view that most Christians and I myself take. Clement of Alexandria, for example, took it. And this is the view that God creates a special creation, each individual soul ex nihilo. When the sperm and the egg unite at the moment of conception, um, the body of a new human being uh, is created. And then at some point in that process, God creates a soul. Most people say, well, the soul is created by God ex nihilo at the moment of conception, or at the very least, in proximity to the moment of conception. When biological life begins, biblical life begins, right? So, that, so that's the main point I want to drive home is the definition of biological life is different from the biblical definition of life. Um, for me, for the Bible, in my understanding, the Bible defines life as when a soul is embodied in a, a physical substance governed by some kind of genome. The human genome for human beings or dogs, they all, animals also have souls. Some animals are in soul, like dogs, mammals, uh, birds, and that sort of thing, right? The Bible says they actually have souls. They're less developed souls, right? They don't have the same functional capacity that human souls or just like we don't have the same capacities that a divine soul has, like God, or, a, you know, an angel's soul, they have different 
capacities and capabilities as well. Um, but animals, some animals have souls. Some don't, right? Some things like plants, they're not alive, biblically speaking. They don't have souls. Insects probably don't have souls. They're just little machines, replicating machines. Um, but the higher animals, definitely the Bible speaks of them having a spirit, a soul. Um, so they're a spiritual substance that's embodied in a physical substance governed by a canine genome or a cat genome or a cow genome, whatever it is, whatever type of animal it is. So death is when that soul is separated from that body. We're not designed to, to die. We're not, our souls are not designed to be separated from our human, from our bodies, physical bodies. That's why it's bad. That's why it's evil. It's a malfunction. It, it's against God's design plan when we die and our soul separates from that body. And that's why resurrection is necessary for us to be complete as, our, as God designed us to be, to live to our fullest capacity and, and stuff, right? So I think that relates to when Paul's talking about how he's naked when we're separated from we awaiting the final resurrection and we're up in heaven. Oh, it's like we're naked. We're not at our, we can't be at our full capacity without our physical bodies. We, we need to be embodied um to be truly human to be what we were meant to be and designed to be by god um so that's sort of my my view there is that yeah just my sort of uh other suggestion is make sure that you kind of highlight the difference between the biblical definition of life and the biological definition of life and then how do those relate to each other and obviously i say that they relate to each other by taking this creationist view so we have the biological definition of life at the moment of conception and biological def okay cells are replicating and doing their doing their thing that equals you're alive well that applies to plants that applies to everything ants all of that all replicating species on the planet but um in addition we have the biblical definition of life which is where a soul or or sub or spirit becomes embodied in some kind of physical substance uh, and that's the biblical definition of life. And I would say that also happens upon the moment of conception. So in the moment, in the terms of a human life, a being made in the image of God, which is why we're so valuable, you can't just kill us. It's evil to kill us. Whereas killing animals is more debatable. It's not necessarily immoral to kill, a, kill an animal. They're, they're not a human being. They don't have the value that we do. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that, so that, that's what I'm saying. The creationist view, I think, marries the, the, the definition that we get from science, the biological definition of life, where life begins upon at the moment of conception. Well, that balances out and matches our theistic or theological perspective that the soul becomes embodied at the moment of conception under this creationist view. God ex nihilo creates our soul and then that manifests in the physical processes taking place when the sperm and egg unite. Um, yeah, it all fits. Uh, biblical life begins at conception, and it's the same as moment as biological life begins. So that's how I marry those two and, and make sense of that. Hopefully that makes sense. I'll have to re-listen to this. But um, yeah, let's uh, move on to the next part of the video. Potential. After conception, there is an actualized.
Another argument put forth is that the woman has bodily autonomy over the human fetus inside of her. This argument is false. Firstly, a parent has a legal obligation to take care of a living child, or else the parent will get charged with neglect. Secondly, it is illegal for citizens to end human life in domestic settings. Thirdly, the offspring in the womb also has a choice, which presumably is to live. The offspring also has bodily autonomy as well, and a right to life. Another argument. So yeah, the, this uh, this last argument. So so this is a common argument by um, atheists and skeptics, right? They'll say, well, women have bodily autonomy, and or just autonomy, and this reflects. Uh, it's true, right? This reflects a principle, a moral principle or value of autonomy uh, that philosophers recognize. We we do have some measure of autonomy um, that God has delegated to us and we are to exercise. And it's evil or bad if that principle is violated uh, without due reason. So the, the are, they are right. In this case, they are losing some amount of bodily autonomy uh, and or just plain autonomy. Forget about the body stuff. Um, that, that's just the form it takes. Either way, they're losing autonomy in some way. They can't govern themselves as they, according to their own God-given free will, in the ways that they want to exercise that free will. Um, so, okay, I like I like these definitions. Yeah, that first of all, because it's a human, we've proven that it's a real human, biblically living organism that's in the uh, soul or person that's in the womb there. They have autonomy too. So there's an equal contradiction here because you're going to violate that person. It doesn't matter. Um, you, I notice you do this, um, and I'm not going to cut you up for this at all because I get what your game is, right? You're, you're going after kind of um, radical leftist feminazi types who, who uh, oh, it's all about the female. Who cares about male? We're, we're men haters and stuff. So, oh, okay, you, you, want, you only care about the woman. You don't care about men at all and their rights or males. Um, well, some of those babies in the womb are females. You care about females, right? You want to protect female rights, don't you? Um, so this is absolutely right, right? There's a, that's a female in the womb and you're killing that innocent little female baby. You're not a feminazi. You could care less about women's rights. You don't care about that innocent woman in the womb and their autonomy. You're violating their bodily and or just general autonomy there. So you're a hypocrite if you do that. Um, so this is a good point. The, the only thing I'll just quick criticize, who cares whether it's a female or not? It, males and females are equal according to the Bible. They're both just as important as any other, and their autonomy is just as important as any other. So the point stands, um, but I get that you're, you're highlighting that it's a, there could be females in the womb because that will speak directly to radical feminazi types who don't care about male babies and males and stuff. They're sexist sexist people. Um, so, all right, cool. Um, now, one thing I would say about this um, is obviously, so this is when we have, let's pretend we have this life. There's also, there's obviously a moral principle of life preservation, right? And there's also a, this moral principle of autonomy, as we've said. Um, so this is, this is what I think, we live in a fallen world, and this is where sometimes moral conflicts happen where two or more moral principles or values 
conflict with each other and we have to choose the lesser of two evils or somehow make sense of that within the moral hierarchy. Now, obviously abortionists will privilege, they're saying, well, autonomy is more important than the life. Kill it so the woman can be autonomous. That's better, that's more important. That's the lesser of two, killing that innocent little baby, that's the lesser of two evils. Um, and again, this is assuming the, we've established that it is a, a human life, right? So we, we responded to that, those objections in the last two, two things, so let's pretend that's established. But then there's other people say, no, the life, preserving that life is more important than bodily autonomy. The lesser of two evils is to violate the woman's autonomy in order to preserve that innocent baby's life in the womb. Um, and I agree with it. I think it's just obvious. Um, you're downright evil and satanic if you don't think that preserving a baby's life, again, we're assuming that it is in fact a life. We've established that already. Is more is an, just mere autonomy is more important? No. First of all, the woman gave up her autonomy when she chose to have sex. Um, and again, okay, yes, what about rape victims? They didn't choose to give up. That's fine. It's a fallen world. That's terrible. That's horrible. But nonetheless, the loss of your autonomy is not worth killing innocent, an innocent baby. You can give it up for adoption after the fact. Um, so the principle of life preservation is way above, head and shoulders above, the, the seeming exemption to the moral principle of autonomy in this case. Plus, we also have to uphold the principle of autonomy in terms of the baby in the womb. So we've got two principles that outweigh um, the seeming violation of the woman's autonomy for a period of nine months or so. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I make sense of that. It's, it's all about the moral hierarchy and how we weigh moral principles and values or rules over and against each other. Um, and that's in addition, she also has certain responses that will appeal on secular grounds, like it's a legal obligation, ending a life is illegal. That's great. I, I'm more interested in the ethical or the moral obligations um, on this front. I, I could care less if the government says abortion is legal or illegal. It is still immoral and pure evil. Um, one, one thing I will say about this, because I'm being very harsh, and I'm doing that on purpose because I feel that this is a very important issue. How many millions of more people that, I mean, we had like 6 million Jews die in the Holocaust. Magnitudes more innocent babies are being killed because we're allowing abortion. Um, so this is a very serious issue um, and we need to get real and, and take seriously what the damage that we're doing un unknowingly on a lot of people's parts. Um, I, I fear that we're going to look back on this someday and we're going to be, how, how evil, how, how foolish, how dumb were we in the 20th and 21st centuries to kill all these innocent babies and, you know, to have people cheering in the streets and protesting in the cheap streets, claiming this is their right. Um, wow. I mean, my words can't describe how, like, I don't know. It's, it's just proof to me that it's true what the Bible says about how Satan can can blind people to be really foolish and and doing the most heinous, despicable acts that have ever 
I don't know. I don't know. So yeah. So so let me move on. Um, okay. So what's the next thing? Another argument put forth is that abortion should be permitted because of economic reasons. This argument is false. Use an analogy. Is it permitted to drown a newborn baby because the parent is unable to take care of her? No, of course not. Since the newborn baby is alive, the parent or the state is obligated to take care of her. Likewise, since the human fetus is alive and as a person as well, the parent or the state should be obligated to take care of her as well. And so yeah, um, this economic thing, this is just horrible. I mean, at least the last objection, it did appeal to an actual real moral principle of autonomy and there could have been at least it can be some debate, right? How, we live in a fallen world. We can't uphold all these principles equally. So what do we do? What do we do? And there's this conflict that we have to work out. But this, if you are appealing to well, economic reasons, um, wow, what's wrong with you? This is just horribly evil, in my opinion. Who cares about your economic reasons? You chose to have sex and it's your fault. You need to take responsibility for that sin. Uh, it's not the baby's fault. And if you can't take care of it, thank goodness we live in a society where you can give the child up for uh, adoption. Um, I, I, people in my family did this. They took the responsibility for their sinful actions and said, look, I can't take care of this. I don't have the economic resources. And they gave the kid up for adoption. That's what a responsible adult does. You don't just neglect your duties because you want to have a good time with no consequences or responsibility. Uh, you don't kill someone because you can't pay money. That's ridiculous. And I, I think the response here is perfect. The, the hypocrisy of these atheists and skeptics who, who advocate for abortion. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's no difference. If you, if you um, say it's okay to do this, um, uh, sorry, if you say that it's not okay once the baby's born, what's the difference? You're, you're saying abortion is okay. Why? Because economic reasons. I can't afford to take care of the kid. Well, that doesn't change after the baby's born. In fact, it gets worse as the, kid, as the child grows in the world, right? I mean, it gets more and more expensive um, over time a bit. So it's, it's um, yeah, you can make the same thing. Well, I have economic reasons. I can't afford to take care of the baby, so I might as well just kill him. Who cares if he's six months old? Who cares if he's a two-year-old? Um, yeah, that, this just makes you a hypocrite. You obviously recognize, no, that would be evil. That's why you have CNN lying to, to pretend that uh, Democrats uh, don't support killing babies af after they're born, um, whereas it's been proven there are some that have advocated for this policy. Um, they, um, they've taken this slippery slope thing, uh, but I will be fair, like mo most of them don't uh, support that. So that proves my point. You don't support killing a baby after it's born for economic reasons. Well, therefore it's irrelevant whether it's in the womb or out. Economic reasons do not justify killing a baby. Um, sorry, it's pure evil and it's greed, uh, the likes of which I've never seen before. I mean, killing a baby just to save money. Wow. Okay. Of course not. If a newborn baby is alive, the parent or the state is obligated to take care of her. Likewise, since the human fetus is alive and as a person as well, 
the parent or the state should be obligated to take care of her as well. Another argument put forth is that abortion limitations infringe upon women's rights. This argument is false. Abortion hurts women's rights because it kills the female in the womb. Abortion is not a human right. Abortion being a human right is a commercially motivated lie. The right to life is a part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. By protecting the life of the female in the womb and being pro-life, we are supporting women's rights and we are making the world a better place for girls everywhere. Being pro-life is the most feminist thing you can do. Yeah, so, so this point, not much to say. I mean, it's total nonsense. A woman, do a woman doesn't have a right in any Western democracy or in any sense of the word. There's definitely, definitely no God-given right. Uh, and in fact, um, we do have a God-given human right to live as, as a right to life. And that includes not just the females, but the males. I understand you're appealing to radical leftist feminazis, so you just want to highlight the females. Nonetheless, both females and males, both in the, in the womb or not, have a right to life. Um, this is a God-given right. How dare you take away the, my rights like that? Um, secondly, um, or those babies' rights, I should say. Um, secondly, it's also true, legalistically speaking, in terms of mere human-made legal rights, constitutional rights, or charter rights, if you're a Canadian. Uh, absolutely, there is no right to an abortion. That's not what the Charter or Constitution says anywhere. There's not a legal scholar in the world who would back you up on that. Um, and instead, you know, you have to twist and contort things to try and get these rights with these Roe v. Wade uh, judgments of the courts and stuff like that. Um, yeah, you, you do not have a legal right um, to kill innocent babies. Um, and abortion is not a human right. So, yeah, uh, in terms of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the international level, in terms of international, um, internationally agreed upon standards, um, yeah, you don't have the right to kill or to have an abortion. Um, and in fact, the right to life is a declared human right in, in those international bodies. So yeah, um, this is kind of a minor point. I, it, it's, I don't really care about rights and stuff like that. We shouldn't be talking about that. It should be at a, at a fundamental level. If you're a Christian, it's about what does God want us to do or not. But um, I understand we're in a secular world and we have to, if we're going to be arguing politically, we have to make these political or secular based arguments as well. Um, so there, there is a place for this. It's just it's not my, this isn't my realm. I'm more into philosophy and theology and uh, understanding God, sharing God's truth and, and the gospel, what's moral, what's ethical and stuff. So I'm glad that you're, you're out here and including these more secularistic or legalistic type arguments as well. The minus thing you can do. In conclusion, the human fetus is alive biologically, is a human person, as it carries the same genetic code, has bodily autonomy as well, and has the right to life. If you've had an abortion, I only want to say that God loves you, and Jesus loves you.
and Jesus will forgive you for everything. But never do that again, ever, as the consequences will be severe. So I, I, I really um, enjoy, uh, enjoy that last little bit because as harsh, and I, I was doing it on purpose. I want to be harsh. I, I want to stress it's evil to kill a baby. I, I don't care about being nuanced or not. Uh, this is so important. I'm, I'm just giving the straight, blunt truth. Uh, you had an abortion. You sinned big time. Um, and you killed an innocent life. So never do that again. But I, I, I love what this, uh, with uh, building up faith, uh, says at the end of this video because it's so true that here's the beauty about Christianity and about Jesus and God um, you can be forgiven it doesn't matter what sins you did Paul he was an actual murderer forget about killing innocent babies in the womb he killed innocent Christians in the here and now adults children uh, pregnant women uh, he didn't care he didn't discriminate he you were a Christian you died you got persecuted uh, for goodness sakes, he presided over the killing of the, the first martyr of the early church, Stephen. Uh, if anyone deserves to go to hell, it's Paul. But God didn't do that. He forgave him. And that's the beauty of uh, Christianity. Jesus died for all of our sins, for everyone. He's freely available. All you have to do is accept him, believe, and put your faith in what he did for you on that cross. He atoned for your sins. So, yeah, you can be forgiven. I, I'm far from perfect. I I don't, obviously I'm not a, a woman, so I, I didn't, I've never committed the sin of abortion, um, but I've committed, I've committed my own sins. I mean, the Bible says, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. So that, I'm just like you, if you've had an abortion, I'm guilty of murder, because I have to confess, I've struggled with the sin of hating my enemies. Uh, David Johnson from, from the Skeptics and Seekers, or Darren Lute, and all those, I, I was kind of bringing them up earlier and, and kind of scoring them and mocking them and stuff like that. But um, I was doing that a little bit for humor, but also there, there was some truth to it. I went through a period where I, I struggled with hating, with my hatred towards them. And I, I really had to wrestle against that and pray for help to overcome that aspect. And it's to a large degree I have by kind of distancing myself, but I still sometimes struggle with, with hating my enemies. So, hey, I'm no better than you. If you've had an abortion, I'm guilty of murder too. I've hated my enemies. Um, so that's the whole point is Jesus can forgive everyone, anyone and everyone for any sin, for any and all sins. All you have to do is accept the gospel message and you'll be forgiven and your sins will all be paid for. And, you know, we can all see each other in heaven, including that baby that, uh, you lost he'll be he or she will be up there and and will spend eternity in, in with Jesus and God and and stuff like that so so yeah don't don't give up hope don't become depressed if you have committed this sin in the past but please just repent of that sin turn 180 degrees place your faith in Christ for forgiveness and never do that again do everything in your power to prevent others uh, everything with, within um the law of Christ, I should say. Um, like, I don't want you planting bombs at abortion clinics and stuff, but do everything within your power uh, and within uh, God's, uh, God's rules for us as Christians on, on how to live as Christians and disciples of Jesus. 
um, to try and stop this, this heinous genocide that's going on, this holocaust of innocent babies that our society is allowing women to do very sickeningly and, and disgustingly. It's, the power of Satan over this world is, is palpable uh, when you think about this issue. So yeah, um, I, I wanna end on that positive note. It doesn't matter if, if you've had one in the past, you can be forgiven. Um, all you need to do is repent and place your faith in Jesus and we'll all be in the same boat. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for listening. That's all I have to say. I think that's it for the video. Hey Stark, I think, I hope you enjoyed my review of these. Um, I, I'm sorry that I couldn't go into too much detail with a lot of stuff. I am a little bit pressed for time uh, because I have another review show as well. So Teddy wants me to do a bunch of shroud research that's going on behind the scenes. So I have to do a bunch of reading. And also next week, I also have to prepare another review show for Caleb Jackson. So I said, I wanna fulfill all my promises before I start doing new RSM shows on my own. So this, I promised Harry, I would review these videos and, and sources. I also promised Caleb Jackson, I would review his one hour video um, where he puts on a skeptic's hat and kind of refutes the case for the resurrection of Jesus. So I wanna do a review of that show for him. Um, and then after that, the final promise that I need to fulfill is to any Muslim listeners, you know, they've given me various sources and I kept promising and saying, I'm, I promise you, I will get to this and do a, a review of it. Um, once I graduate and finish uh, my studies, because that was quite busy for me working and also doing my studies and thesis and everything. Um, well, guess what? I'm done. So as soon as I finish reviewing the Caleb Jackson one, that's the next show I'm going to do. I'm going to review that the Islam sources, Islamic sources that, you guys sent me at least a couple of the videos and give you my take on that. Uh, and then that should fulfill all of my um, review show promises at least. Um, so then after that, um, I've got some guest shows in the work uh, with David Kemmel Cook, for example, and we're gonna be continue on trying to help him with his reasons for leaving the Christian faith. Um, Asha Lancaster Thomas should be coming in late June, sometime early July with, with hopefully Marvin Wallace as a co-star. Um, and I've got um, other guests coming coming in sometime later in the summer. Um, and another, another guest that I haven't uh, scheduled date, a date for. Um, but outside of that, okay, I wanna get back to my teaching ministry. This is what's most important to me with RSM, the hiddenness of God. That's the next solo show that I'm gonna be working on as I pump out these review shows over the next couple of weeks and hopefully I'll be ready to do that. Uh, and of course, I'll be finishing uh, doing another Shroud solo show sometime in June as well. So lots of good stuff on the horizon. Um, but yeah, with that, I will shut up and have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.